This episode of the e-commerce playbook podcast is brought to you by Wayflyer. Their revenue-based financing is faster and more flexible than traditional funding options, allowing you to get approved within hours and have cash in your account within days. You can learn more at wayflyer.com or with the link in the show notes. Okay, well, today there is no Richard, but there is a special guest that is joining me for today's podcast. The last few weeks, I've been thinking that we have covered a couple of really important topics about this moment. One, we covered some of the M&A activity through our own failed acquisition at Bamboo Earth. We talked a little bit about some of the debt markets and what we've seen there. And I've been thinking about sort of a third part of the capital ecosystem of e-commerce, and that has to do with the equity markets, those that are out fundraising on the equity side. And so we're going to do a two-part special set of episodes here to look at those markets from two different points of view. One, we're going to bring in, and that's who we have with us today, a founder that is currently in the process of fundraising in the middle of this market. And then next, we're going to be speaking with an investor who is currently writing checks in this market and to get their points of view of what they're seeing, what the experience has been like. And really, this is just an excuse for me to hang out with a couple of good friends. The first of which is Dave Charn, my man, the CEO and founder of Fearn. Co-founder, is that the right? I want to make sure I give credit to the whole squad there, but of Fearn. Dave, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me on, Taylor. Excited for the conversation. Excited about the topic. Living and breathing it every day. So yeah, it's going to be fun to chop it up with you. There are probably few people that I have spent more time on Zoom with than Dave, because the way that we met was throughout COVID, we started an online poker group where we spent probably like four hours every Wednesday night on a Zoom playing poker with a bunch of strangers for over a year and a half and have become really good friends. And Dave is someone I have a ton of respect for. And upfront disclosure, I am personally an investor in fear and and a big believer in what they are up to. So that out of the box and upfront for everybody to know. But more than that, I am a believer in Dave the human and the business and what they're up to. So Dave, why don't you, rather than me doing it a disservice, tell us about Fearn and what you have going on. Yeah, absolutely. So Fearn is a vertically integrated manufacturer of furniture. We are sort of marrying old world craftsmanship with modern innovation to bring high quality products at scale to residential and commercial environments. And we're not that young a business and we've been around for a little while and we did a long R&D development process around some patented hardware and proprietary manufacturing to bring a sort of systems-based solution to the furniture industry. So one of the things, and I'm going to break apart all of that that you just went through for us, but when I think about e-commerce, like one of the things that is a reality is that when there are mechanisms for building businesses um, that are really effective, they tend to become ruts. Like they become a way to build a thing and everybody does the thing and Facebook ads and drive a business and sort of flash production and make it quick. And maybe the quality is not great, but we're going to market the hell out of it has certainly been a signature identity of a lot of brands built in the last few years. And so what I'm always fascinated by is like, what is the massive deviation from that rut? And I think that's part of what Fearn is. So can you say a little bit about, because the history of like the product, which we see behind you, for those of you that are on video here, tell us a little bit about where it comes from. When you say like the R&D process is long, like e-commerce is like, oh, like eight months. Like, what'd you spend? How long did it take? Like, give us, what do you actually mean when you say that? 
Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a great question. And like to answer it properly, I'll take a step back. My, you said earlier, I have a co-founder, his name is Ross Broden, and he's a fourth generation craftsman. You know, his whole family has been building and in manufacturing forever. And, and Ross grew up sort of under the tutelage of his grandfather and his grandfather ran production for the oldest American production chair company called the Hitchcock Chair Company. This is a company that started in 1818 and had a hundred year run of success and then almost went out in the Great Depression. And his grandfather and a few folks brought it back and for 50 years from the 1930s to the 1980s, they did 80,000 units a year of chairs. And, you know, what Ross really heard through that process of growing up under his grandfather was these big challenges. And there's still the same challenges in furniture. How do we store fully assembled items? How do we move these things around the country today, around the world? You know, how do we service them once they're out in the world? So Ross was a, was a high-end furniture maker, custom furniture maker and cabinetry guy. And he thought, I want to come up with a product uh, solution that solves a lot of those problems. It is, is sort of accessible at scale. And, you know, mistakenly thought that would take six months to develop some, you know, some way to produce products that could solve for that. After three plus years, we ended up with a patented system of hardware that is sort of both internally as well as externally the most recognizable element of the furniture. And it's joinery. It's where, where furniture fails most is in the joints. It allows for us to make a super high quality piece of furniture that also breaks down flat and can move around the world quite easily. And Ross developed this system with those problems in mind. And the real challenge was how do you find out whether or not products that you build today are going to last generations if you're really building something that is unique? And is it going to really serve both the residential and the commercial market in a way that's differentiated? And so we then spent a sort of period of time putting these in restaurants, the, probably the highest traffic place that you could beat the crap out of furniture. And that's exactly what happened was it got beat up and, you know, in a serious way in these commercial environments. And what we learned was two things. One, the product really does hold up. It's an incredible product that, you know, that's, that serves that market well. But two, this is pre-website. People were turning this product over and trying to figure out who made it and where they could buy it for their homes. And that really led into a sort of different way to bring the product to market and to understand that these could be discovery platforms for the product. What I'll say, you know, I'm going long here, but just to, you know, just to, to put this in the context of the furniture industry, the furniture industry is one that hasn't really changed that much over the last 50 years, let's call it, since offshore production started happening. And because of that, you have these sort of like moments that have had impacts, like mid-century modern furniture, you know, Charles and Ray Eames introduced uh, materials that allowed for high quality furniture to go to the masses. Like that was a big innovation. It's still really prevalent today. The Aeron chair was an innovation that happened 30 years ago that was about functionality and office seating, and they sell a million of those, you know, a year, and it really matters. But in the last 30 years, there hasn't been deep innovation. And so what Fearn is about is a system solution to those problems where you start with a white space and designing products that make the manufacturing asset light, that make the distribution simpler, that make the service of those products long-term better. And in turn, you create better economics for, for your business and your investors, you know, best in class margins. You create a better customer experience where folks can actually, you know, make good choices. And then in the long run, you're solving for this sort of problem where 12 million tons of furniture goes to landfill every year. And how do you create products that don't get thrown away? Yeah. So two of my customers both started in 1947. One was 47 brand, the hat that I'm wearing. The other was Igloo Coolers. And when I meet with those brands, the distinction between what a heritage story of in 1947, my grandfather's father, my great grandfather had the only light since the peril shop outside of Fenway Park and was the sole provider of Red Sox gear 
that became this brand and for 70 years. And now the team story that sits on Yaki Way outside of Fenway Park is 47 brand has become like you can't compete with that as a startup. Like you can't recreate legacy. Like, and so there's always something so unique about that. Same thing with Igloo Coolers. There is a one of the things that they always talk about when they tried to go D2C, which was a new exercise for them, was that they had this advantage that in every garage in America, there's an igloo cooler already. And so there's this story that we're familiar with, this idea of the experience that we've had with this object in some way. And so that to me is always like, okay, there's a trigger here. But my initial hesitation, Dave, was furniture for e-commerce. What are we doing here? We have this metric we like to call value to weight ratio. And <laughs> there seems to break it in a way that also requires a bunch of capital intensive investment on the production side, tough cash conversion cycles, potentially long lead times. How does fear and uniquely address those things in a way that makes it unique? And how does that sort of also contextualize what we're going to talk about now and how you think about capitalizing a business that is very different in the way that you're approaching it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So, you know, I think there's a lot of pieces in what you just said. And I, you know, and I think like at the heart of it, I want to pull those apart. Right. So, okay. You know, first of all, I think that furniture is a category that a lot of folks view as uninvestable because of what you said, right? It's capital intensive. You have to store tons of inventory. You have to then, you know, sell that inventory and touch it a million times and moving it is so difficult. For us, this is where you think about a system solution. Like you think about the fact that these products were designed in a way where, you know, if I was, if I had you in my workshop, I would take you to a wall and I would show you 10 chairs hanging on the wall, just like you see behind me. And in that same space, when you see parts and pieces that make up those chairs, we can fit a thousand chairs on a wall that size in component parts and pieces. And the components that we've designed this system of furniture around actually work across all the different products that we make. And so when we make inventory investments, we make them in an incredibly efficient way. And we often don't have to buy that inventory until we've already had those orders placed because the lead times, while shorter than most of the industry, allow for us to very quickly turn raw materials into furniture domestically and then move that furniture short distance to the customers that we're serving here. So we have a capital light model on the on the manufacturing side. We have a distribution model where you're not paying to ship air. You're not seeing tons of that furniture show up damaged. I mean, the number of folks I've talked to in the last two years who they bought a couch or they bought an item and it showed up and it was damaged. And then they waited another eight weeks and it was damaged again. And on the third try, they got it right. If you think about the cost for the, for the company on that side, it's incredible, right? And forget about the yep. consumer experience being bad. The thing about Fearn is that we're building a multi-channel business. So, you know, I mentioned earlier these sort of organic discovery and these restaurants that was happening. So we don't think of e-commerce as the only way that we distribute the furniture. Most of our sales are actually coming through architects and designers who are installing this furniture in beautiful spaces and whatever channel that they're happening. Sometimes the furniture is taking a stop at the place where it's going to be assembled and then made that last mile delivery. But on the home side, we're almost 60% of the business now is residential and is to directly to those consumers. We're able to, if you think about it on a relative basis, relative to other furniture, we're substantially more efficient, right? So you start, Taylor, with, with a high quality product that's built efficiently, which gives you a really great starting margin structure. You deliver that product on a better set of terms, timeline, ability for return with zero cost to the consumer, flat so that you're not paying for air. They get one item. If you're going to buy eight chairs, you get one item, you decide if it's perfect, if it is, we'll send you the next seven, but you don't have eight items to send back, right? And we've built these sort of systems in the process of buying that give consumers the opportunity to make 
choices they're confident in. And if you're confident, you might invest more in a higher quality thing. And then we stand behind the products in a way that allows people to invest a few more dollars than they would in another case. So we offer to buy that furniture back into perpetuity because we know that it'll stand up. And if we do buy it back, we sell it on a secondary market that we own, that we have a platform for called the Annex. And the Annex is where people who don't want to pay as much for a brand new item can get a can get an item that's you know had a prior life or is a return or a sample. And so building in these systems that give us a better economic model on the business side and a better consumer experience allows us to sort of cut through some of the traditional challenges in furniture. So I'm going to read you something because when I think about investing in e-commerce, there's this debate about whether or not venture capital is useful or you know investment dollars are useful as an e-commerce premise. And I think a lot of what I've seen is that if the core use of funds is to fuel the growth of, let's say, customer acquisition, like venture dollars in exchange for equity is the wrong capital mechanism for that. It doesn't make any sense because the idea that you would be raising money to fuel the sort of core operating growth lever, if that's not cash positive, if it's not already generating incremental cash, how is external cash injected into that premise going to work? And so there's a lot of people right now questioning whether venture into e-com is a good idea. Um, but my so Dave Recook, who's the president of Bamboo Earth, he put out this tweet the other day. I don't know if you saw this, Dave, but I'm going to read it to you. And I, I think this illustrates to me why Fearn, in my mind, was a good investment because I agree with Dave wholeheartedly. So I'm going to read this and you tell me if what, what you think about this. Okay, so he says, the recent macro environment has brought on a lot of talk about the virtues of bootstrapping and operating lean and profitable. I think that is largely the right approach for most consumer brands. However, it's worth noting the exceptions. This is when I do think VC is a fit. Venture capital is best used on capital expenses that provide sustainable competitive advantages. A capital expense is something where the full cost is incurred now, but the value of the asset is realized over a long period of time. Debt mechanisms are ill-suited for early stage CapEx and consumer brand. VC, on the other hand, is well-suited for it. High risk is very sub subjective to evaluate high returns on capital. And early stage uses for CapEx that can create sustainable advantages. R&D product development, regulatory hurdles, capital equipment or tooling, large MOQ requirements, core businesses use case include software development. And so the case that he's making is that the reason an e-commerce brand should be raising money, and if I'm a venture capitalist, I'm leery of anybody coming to me you know, with this idea that it's growth in marketing and I'm going to use your money because if that's not generating me a positive ROIC right now, why do you need my cash to go solve that problem? But what I love about Fearn is that, and maybe you can talk about where and how and the facility is, I believe the cash created now and used in that capital expenditure mechanism creates and sustains this moat that drives the value capture into the future. And that's kind of what I want to be doing with my dollars if I provide them to a founder. So one, do you agree with the sentiment that Dave shared and how does Fearn fit within that? I think it's an interesting tweet and okay. I think it's an interesting perspective for a couple of reasons. One is what I think recent history has shown us when it comes to venture. And this will be a great question for the part two of this series, yeah. right? Because yeah, I'm, I'm going to ask I'm it saying, again. I'm saying what I see. I think venture and consumer, for the most part, this is a generalization. There's always exceptions, has looked for exactly the opposite of what that I tweet agree. suggests, right? Like we've yeah. seen 
what they've sought out, and I think that it's a herd mentality within venture in a lot of cases, but we've seen, show me a, a dollar in gets me a dollar fifty out and I'll give you right. infinite dollars so that you can grow this business really fast, right? Yes. And it usually works. If you have the right, it works to grow a business very fast. It doesn't necessarily work for a sustainable long-term success story of a brand, right? And, right. You know, and that's where you get these sort of GMO brands, especially if you have a commoditized product. And now what you're really selling is how effective am I at getting a consumer to buy something and acquiring customers in a rapid way, in a math equation that works for me at least today, right? Yes, right. Um, and that often works for the early stage investors in those companies. You find some sometimes a liquidity event and an outcome that actually works for those investors. So I think it's important that we, one, we understand, well, what's the motivation and what's the goal of the investment and at what time frame? And then two, right. is that the best thing for the business long-term or for the founder or the person taking that capital? Uh, right. I actually think in a lot of cases, particularly when it comes to physical goods, Goods. Venture has shied away from those categories because they don't want to make capital investments in long-term R&D, even if the upside is massive, if you're successful, because the, if you're successful, is really hard to determine. It's really yeah. hard to know, even with a great idea, are you going to be the one who makes the impact on the category that's defining that category in a way that then is a huge return? So, you know, often my way of thinking about investment, and I think venture would probably be not that different, is if this is successful, is there a huge and outsized return available to me? That's are right. The people who are, they are most likely to deliver that return. And is there something unique about who's bringing this sort of business forward that makes them you know, likely to be successful? So while I want to believe that tweet, it, it might even be intuitively well, correct. It's not yeah. the way that I've seen the world operate. Okay. But this is what I want to challenge is that I think in my supposition is that the return profile on that investment thesis is going to end up turning out to be really poor. The one that you just described, because, and I think in many ways, that's a venture investor confusing themselves for a hedge fund manager or something where they're looking for some annualized return on a, like sort of an algorithmic view of dollar in, dollar out investing, which is never the intended premise of venture to begin with, right? Like, and so I think that there was this mania around the perceived ROIC and what you could do to capture market in this capital efficient way. And then all of a sudden you'd have all this leverage down the line about what it would sort of margin expansion as efficiencies get created. It turns out the exact opposite was true. Like CAC deteriorated in ways the models never showed. And, you know, the LTV numbers were substantially overstated and you end up with Peloton, right? But my thing is, is I think that the actual truth, like if we get back to the core thesis, I think Dave's like, he's right, is that what venture dollars should help to do is get you over barriers to entry that others can't replicate so that you have a sustained long-term advantage. And that comes with the underlying product and infrastructure that I think fear and to me brings to the table is that like you have a system with dollars deployed into it that on the other side of those dollars is a thing that becomes very difficult to mimic. That, yeah. So like this is, I find this to be a fascinating topic for a bunch of reasons, right? I yeah. do think it's applicable to me. I gotta go, I'll give you a couple of examples of where I think what we're discussing has been, we've seen it in the world and we've seen great success when actual time and dollars are invested. And then I'll talk to you about how it relates to fear and in my opinion. So look, I don't think you have to look further than probably the, the most well-known company today and, you know, Tesla, right? right. You know, yeah. Elon had to, you know, he, he came in and we don't have to talk about the founder story there, but like right. when Elon was driving for that company to be successful, there wasn't a huge amount of support and people saying, Hey, I really want to get behind a deep long-term investment in developing an electric vehicle. That's going to revolutionize the way that the car industry works. But when, when you look at it, like he self-funded a huge amount of that, the government self-funded, you know, funded a huge amount of that. And what we saw was someone saying, Hey, I'm going to build cars in America 
vertically integrated manufacturing. I'm going to sell those cars in a way that's completely different than what we've seen. I'm not going to go to the dealership model immediately. I'm going to build elements of that car, you know, internally with the batteries, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to generate the components that matter most. And I'm going to let the car be the marketing vehicle, you know, it for itself. I'm not going to invest in marketing at all. And it's wildly successful in the whole auto industry is chasing it now for decades. It was incrementally better miles per gallon on largely commodity products with a brand that sits at the front in a little, you know, on the back. And I think like he revolutionized that industry because he was willing to put dollars behind an R&D process that actually looked to change the industry. So now, as I think about fear and like, I truly think fear can be the Tesla of the furniture industry. And, right. and the thing that I think is actually most compelling about fear in this moment is we've already done the hard capital intensive part of we've self-funded the R&D process to the patented hardware. We've designed and built, you know, 30 plus machines that make scale manufacturing of highly crafted pieces really simple for anyone, not someone who has 10 years of woodworking experience. And that part of the equation is done. The facility sits there 40,000 square feet in Reno, ready to be filled with units. We've already seen the product in the market be blessed by some of the best architects and designers in the world. It has amazing traction in the Bay Area. When I think about what we need for capital, like it's a unique opportunity to step in with asymmetric risk. If we're successful, if we can be the, you know, the Tesla of the furniture industry, it's going to be category defining and a massive win, you know, a multi-billion dollar opportunity. And what we need now is more products so that we have a larger bullseye for people to say, I'm interested in participating with that brand. We need to replicate the barrier success in multiple markets and we need to build awareness. We need people to know that this product exists outside of, you know, our customer base today. But I believe that we're already past that point where traditional VC would have probably said, hey, if that's many, many years of R&D and product development and manufacturing development, it's maybe not the right investment for us. Yeah. And, and I really think that what happened was the VC as being so software centric for so long where there was this sort of playbook related to the performance metrics that sort of compounded over time that you could sort of draw the graph and understand the user acquisition over retention equals this certain value. And if you put money into that, the thing takes a ton of market and goes really, really fast and you win, right? The difference though is that, well, one of the many differences is I think about that many of the attributes that we would define, like the hyper-efficient CAC, gross margin, like if you were to sort of do the like playbook of things, LTV to CAC looks really great on this, is that very under-considered in that is that the deterioration of those numbers has to do with the barrier to the replication of them. So what I have seen is that in many cases, what happens is the fact that those numbers exist in the mechanism that they do are actually a signal that everyone can deteriorate them and still make money, which collapses the category entirely almost. And so the whole thing degrades because you're talking about digital real estate, like search engine results page that are auction based, that all the profits eventually get competed away. And it sort of creates this deterioration of the core value. So the existence of the marginal value capture is room for competition. There's almost no barrier to production. There's no patent. There's nothing. And the whole thing deteriorates down to zero. And so that's different than software in those ways, right? Where there's this software has this very inherent viral loop that can be built into the product that can't be built into physical goods in the same way. And so they, the new customer acquisition mechanisms are all sort of competed over in a way that is destructive. And so if I'm investing in consumer product, I think exactly what you're describing is what people have to think about. They have to go to what creates long-term leverage with capital to capture value. And I think that's going to be, in my thesis, is that you're going to see a return to that. But my next question is, 
what has the market's response been? Now there's a macroeconomic environment, and this is the second time you've raised. In this moment now, what are you experiencing? How much of that is macroeconomic? How much of that is, what do we do with e-commerce? And how are people sort of responding to you? Yeah, I think actually your last question and this question are pretty related. In my opinion, you know, in times that are boom times, commodity products that don't need that much of a, as you want to say, barrier to entry or strong differentiation, all the rising tide lifts all boats and you see an easy ability to raise capital. You see an easy ability to, you know, to be successful, even if your product is not that special. I think when we get to the lean times, when we're in challenged environments, you know, macro environments or consumer environments, this is where we sort of separate, you know, the best companies and the best products from the commodity products that don't really have a reason to exist in many cases, right? I mean, look, if you give any company hundreds of millions of dollars to spin up marketing, like they're going to sell a lot of product, at, you know, yep. and the question then becomes, do those customers come back time and time again to buy more products? Or is it a one and done? Because, hey, yes, you got me to buy the product, but nothing was that special about the product. And therefore, I'm going to move on to the next company that's incentivizing me to buy the product or targeting right. me correctly with the ad. Right. And so I think in this market on the consumer side, what we're going to see is those companies who are truly differentiated, who are executing well with products that are not just commodity products and do create value for the consumer are going to be successful. And on the capital raising side, I think that this environment is more discerning. I think that, you know, in many cases, we've moved on from the FOMO investment, right? It's not who's on the cap table, right. who's the lead investor. I mean, I don't yeah. need to see anything. It's not going to work that way, right? Like you're going to have to be willing and able to tell deeper stories for you to sort of support the rationale for why these businesses should matter and should exist. And I think that, you know, that diligence process will be a bit longer. It will be more of a, you know, of an in-depth conversation. And you'll have to, you'll have to have a model that is more than just a concept or an idea that you could spin up really quickly, because I think that we've both seen this idea of, you know, a CAC-based investment get torn down. But we've also seen that in an environment like this, liquidity is precious. And while professional investors need to allocate it, they're going to be more thoughtful about who they allocate it to and why. Um, that's right. And that's the experience. And for a company like ours, like, I actually think that may benefit us because we have a very deep and long story to tell about what's differentiated about this company and about this product. And getting someone to sort of take the time and the willingness to hear that and to dive in a little deeper gives us the opportunity to sort of really get more traction versus, versus less. So let me ask you, has the investor then reoriented what they're asking, what they're looking for? Or is your experience like, they wanted this CAC and now they just want a better CAC. Like, well, like, is it just like, I wanted you to be growing faster with better LTV to CAC or are they really, have the questions changed from the last time you, like, what has been the actual interaction experience? Yeah, so I'll say this, you know, we have always thought, like, I have sort of taken the approach that I don't want to raise entirely speculatively. I want to have certain problems figured out before I go to, you know, to the world and look for capital. And that may have been a mistake historically or may not, but I think... You know, when I look back at when we raised, you know, not that long ago, it was really about let's get the infrastructure in place to support growth, which we need a facility that is, you know, substantially larger for more throughput that allows us to bring new products to market, that allows us to hire a team who's going to, for the first time ever, really market this in a deliberate way. Up until then, we had sort of traded entirely on the product's amazing and people tell other people and, you know, and I'm out there hustling to, you know, to get clients. That raise was largely 
uh, a network-based raise. It was largely about affluent angels and strategic folks within the industry who said, I see this and I believe in it. And in some cases, it was, you know, people who might have been more software investors who are like, hey, I love physical things that look amazing. I want a piece of this. I sat in those chairs at the restaurant. It was incredible. This time through, you know, we're looking for, you know, for the investor base to be moving from just affluent angels to family offices and venture capital that's either, you know, sustainably minded or category, you know, category specific. And, and so the conversation based on who the investor is has changed, but also based on the environment. I think that people are looking for businesses that they know can get to a profitable place in some realistic way, right? It's not just, well, when you get to infinite scale, then you can figure out how to make this a profitable business, right? Like you want to have line of sight to this is a sustainable business model that has a huge opportunity to really deliver a massive return. If you're a professional investor, I think you're looking for huge opportunity for return if it's successful, right? Like, but I think how we define what successful is changing a little bit. And I think the risk taking is changing a little bit more. And, and I think that the process is longer, right? Which means that the founder has to be positioned differently for how they go about that process. So if you were to say, okay, let's just assume last round took you X meetings and Y time. Are we at 2x the number to get there, do you think? Like if I'm a founder and I'm listening, I'm going, okay, I'm getting ready for a raise. As I think about what's, how long is this going to take me? How many meetings am I like, what do you think that relationship has been like in terms of the work to get there? Is it, are we at 2x? Are we at 10x? Like how much more difficult is this environment in your opinion? Yeah. So, you know, on the, you know, again, I sort of broke that into like affluent angels and family offices and VCs. And so like, I think the affluent angel, you know, at the very top of the affluence, it's, they're still writing checks, right? But I think folks who are like, hey, I want to be angel investing. This looks exciting. There's so many people, you know, doing this well, and I should be one of them, right? Like, yeah, like those, me. Che yeah, those exactly. checks don't exist in this environment, right? Like, forget right. about it. There's, that's not right. happening, right? I think that, you know, as I've gone to market, our existing investor base believes in this. They already know the story. And those folks have come to the table and said, yep, we're in on a, you know, on, on this race. And that's largely who we've tapped so far. As we think about January and February, you know, nobody's going to do anything the next few weeks. I'm really setting up for, let's be well positioned for those other groups, the family offices and the VCs. Everyone I've spoken to and, and everything that I've seen in the early stages of testing the market is, yeah, this is going to be a longer process. Like you're going to be looking to go layers deeper. I can't put a specific timeline on it, but what I can say is that even if you get quickly to a term sheet, the diligence process thereafter is going to be longer. And you just have yeah. to be, I think, prepared for that. One thing that I believe deeply in the fundraising process, and I'm sure there are folks that are just going to be exceptional at it, and they have the process, they drive it from start to finish, and they're already, you know, they've done this 25 times. But yeah. for a lot of the founders who are out there listening to this, who might be in the e-commerce world or, you know, D2C, stick-to-itiveness and just sort of like, you have to find your believers, right? And one yeah. or two or three of those believers, if you are confident in what your value prop is, if you really have an opportunity to build a business that can have a great return for investors, you need to be able to tell that story succinctly. And then you need to find your believers. And if you do, one or two people can change the trajectory of your business. And I think the last thing I'll say on this is, it's really important for me to keep the mindset that I'm building relationships through this process. This is an opportunity to get in front of people. And sometimes it's not the investor who will actually write the check this round. A no today can be the yes in the next round. It's sometimes That's a right, no yeah. today from an investor is actually the introduction that leads to, hey, we're now just in the driver's seat for being uh, a client. You know, I've had a hotel brand who said, we're not gonna, the owner's not gonna be an investor, but he's like, I wanna source your products for all my new properties. And I'm going, that's well, right. that's a win, yeah. right? Yep, yeah. What about, um, 
are people back in person? Like, because your last round was in the middle of COVID. Is that a big difference? Like, are you back in boardrooms putting on your suit? Like, what, what's the actual meeting world like these days? Yeah, great, great question. So it's really interesting. I would say I'm still heavily in a Zoom meeting culture for, you know, for the most part. Yeah. But we have this unique aspect to our raise. And, you know, this is something that I've mentioned to you. And I think that we may do here in January or February. I've almost never gotten a no when I've been able to show someone the facility and the systems right. that are behind what is unique in our process, right? And why yeah. it's different than the rest of the furniture industry. So every person who's come in person and seen that has said, yes, I'm in on this. This is amazing, right? Yep. And trying to convey that over a deck or over a phone call That's is right. very challenging. So people are more willing to meet in person. I'm going to other cities to have conversations with folks and I intend to do that in the new year for sure. I'm thinking about let's host, you know, I've got a small group of folks who have said, I'd love to come through for an event where I get to see that. And I'd like to bring people to us to see what's really unique and why would you make this decision? There's something here. It's real. It's not a concept. It's already happening. Um, yeah. And so that's an opportunity in my mind. That's so important. When we raised our round for four by 400 back in, you know, whatever it was seven years ago now, we hated meetings. And every time we found ourselves in that setting, what ended up happening is like somebody was talking at us and, in the, and it was just sort of this back and forth thing of like, man, you know, they're missing us in this way. Like we're, this isn't us in this setting, like formal trying to meet them on their turf. And so what we ended up doing was we had an event and our old office was really cool. It had a basketball court inside of it. And so we hosted the, this event inside of this basketball court and we got a bunch of people to come that we wanted to raise money from. We had a few professional athletes show up. We had a few of our people show up and we did a deck and a presentation like we were pitching, like we were selling to a customer and we raised all our money in one night. And part of it was just trying to figure out like, who are we and what makes us unique and how do you put that on display? And I think the same thing is true for you. It's like, yeah, the facility is it's the reason you're sitting in front of your chairs on the Zoom call is because you want people to feel it, to touch it and to experience it. And like you said, I've walked around your facility in San Francisco and it is, it's like, oh, this feels magic. Like the story comes to life in a way. So I think that's the thing for people to think about is that like, what do you have to make people feel your story? Because at the end of the day, one of the things I've noticed, especially like there's sort of the joke that like investments are one on the financials, two on the deck and three, like the coolest thing you can tell your golfing buddy. Like that's like the premise, right? And there's something about the story that's like, even if you lose, I was proud of that one. You know, like that I think there's something about what you guys do that there's a piece to it there that is really interesting. So I, I like that. I'm excited to see if that goes somewhere. That last point you made is really interesting. There was a tweet this week from one of the founders at Netflix who said, you know, I've made hundreds of angel investments and I've changed my mentality lately, which is like, I'm not even sure I'll be able to make money on these, but I want to know that I made choices to support the things that I believed in and wanted to see in the world, even that's if right. they fail. That's right. Um, that's right. And I think that's a pretty incredible, if you can be in a place where you can make that decision and understand it, that's incredible. It's different than obviously a professional investor's perspective. Right. I think it's really interesting. And I think, you know, as you just said, I would just really echo, like, know what is unique about your business. Know what it is that is your highest and best chance of getting people to see that and in what format, and then figure out how to build that into whatever way you're pitching and sharing your story with the world. And I think that for us, we have an incredible team. And more and more, I've been thinking, like, how do I bring my team into this process? Because that is one of our greatest assets and one of our, you know, our best chances of being successful in addition to seeing the facility and seeing the system-based stuff. I love it. Dave, if someone is like, hey, I'm interested in this story, I want to hear more. Where do they reach out? How do they get a hold of you? Do you want to just drop your bank wire instructions? Or what, <laughs> what do you think is the best way to actually get a hold of you? 
Yeah, routing number. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah um, exactly. So yeah, so I'm reachable directly at Dave at Fearn.com, F-Y-R-N.com. Would love to hear from folks who think our story sounds compelling. On Twitter, I'm at Mad Roman Candle, but I don't tweet that often, although I am there. That's how I met you. So yeah, if anyone's listening and wants to hear more about fear, I'd love to, to have that conversation. And I appreciate, appreciate you talking to me about this, Taylor. It's really helpful just to get in front of folks and have the conversation and be reminded of basic steps that are being had and how to, you know, to stay at it. Yep. And I think that's it for everybody right now is stay at it. And it's one of the reasons I believe in you. Dave Dave is one of the most humble dudes you'll ever meet, but I use him a lot for advice on my business. He's led some turnarounds for some of the biggest retail brands you've ever heard. I'll keep those names for his story. You're going to have to reach out to ask him about the stories, but just a brilliant business mind with a team that is incredibly compelling and a product that is just special. Go check it out, fearn.com, F-Y-R-N.com. And when you order this product, the experience of opening it and getting to build the chair to participate in 100 years or 140 years of legacy of craftsmanship yourself is a fun exercise. So check it out. I'm a believer in the human. I'm a believer in the business. And uh, Dave, thanks for coming by. It's a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. <laughs>